This is Archive Atlanta, episode 29, Last Mansions of Petrie. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. I'm really excited about this week's topic because it embodies the tangible history that I'm always hoping to share. I've admitted before that I'm very visual and less imagination-based, so I need to see things to connect. And that's why when I take the, I think Phoenix Flies has like a Civil War downtown tour, I always have a hard time, even with the photos. And the guide will be like, oh, this was a giant field and there was a car shed here. And my brain just sees hotels and tall office buildings. Atlanta, however, requires to have a little imagination since we existed in two eras before the Civil War and after. Add in the rate that we love to tear things down and build new, we're continually working with this image of what used to be. The same goes for Petrie Street. What many people don't realize is that Petrie Street, beginning just as you leave the downtown business district, was lined with big, beautiful mansions of prominent Atlantans. In past episodes, I've mentioned a few that used to be there, and even one that still exists, which we'll get there. But what many people don't know is that we are only down to six remaining. And really, it's like five and a half, but I'll explain why in a minute. So today, I'm talking about the last remaining mansions of Petrie. I'm going to go from youngest to oldest, so sort of from the northernmost point and then back into downtown. Let you know where they are when they were put there, and who built them. Some of these mansions hide in plain sight, and then some are a little bit more recognizable. Maybe you've been to visit them before. Before we get into the houses, let's start with why Petrie Street became this elite destination. In 1900, Atlanta city limits were still a very small concentric circle. Not all of the roads were paved, and there was really no rhyme or reason as to which got paved. And when I say paved, it's certainly not what you're thinking. Uh, The paving material at that time was granite blocks and cobblestone were preferred. And actually, granite held up better in regards to traction. So cobblestone, if you go over too many times, it becomes really smooth. And that's not good for um, horse hooves or wagon wheels. But it was not desirable in residential areas. So the noise of horses and wheels passing over stone was really, really noisy. So of course, in 1903, 75% of the city streets are paved with granite and something they call Belgium block, except one, Petrie Street. Being home of the wealthy and influential, this is the only street at the time we have paved in asphalt. Normally, a city center is where businesses are located and they're loud, bustling places. So if you had money, you wanted to live away from the dirty hustle and bustle. It was seen as cleaner and safer for your family to live away from that. So you see this pattern in almost any city, um, but you definitely see it in Atlanta as the well-to-do start to travel up Petrie Street. I first broached this topic in the Capital View episode, but the car changed Atlanta. In 1909, the first automobile show was held in the South, and this was the first show not held in New York City or Chicago. So it was a big deal already to be held in the South, and it was held in Atlanta. Automobile Week was from November 6th to November 13th um, of that year, and it attracted all of the upper-class Atlantans. If you ever research the history of NASCAR, 
They also explain this car racing phenomena that was kind of happening all over the uh, East Coast. So they would have races from Florida, the Northeast, or, or backwards, and then cities would host these races. So Atlanta had one where participants raced I think they might have started in Pennsylvania, but I could be wrong. And then basically whoever got to Atlanta first won. Having a car was a new luxurious item, and the wealthy were definitely interested. In Atlanta, the streetcars would spur suburban development like Inman Park. If you build a way for people to get to and from work, they will move there. But what the car did for its owners is that it's now possible to live anywhere you want. So you were not restricted to the streetcar route um, or even the streetcar. You know, you didn't want to be on it for an hour. So it let you go even further. As the car gains in popularity, which is really after World War I, um, that is really prevalent, people start to spread their wings. And for the rich, white population of Atlanta, those wings are flying them straight up Peachtree Street. By 1920, 73% of people listed in the city's social register and that means rich white people, <laughs> were living north of the city limits. Savvy developers are creating neighborhoods geared directly to cars, like Ansley Park, but the elite still wanted a Peachtree Street address. In 2019 Atlanta, we all think of Peachtree Street as the commercial corridor of the city. And it's really hard for me to picture this idyllic country road lined with mansions, so the first house we're going to talk about was the furthest north of the six that we're talking about today, and it's the youngest of the bunch, but this is also the house that I'm calling the half in five and a half. And the reason is it still exists, but it's no longer on Peachtree. The Randolph Lucas house is a prime example of the rise in Atlanta's civic elite moving on up, to quote the Jefferson's theme song. Its first owner, Hollis Randolph, was born in Virginia, and after graduation from the University of Virginia, he moved to Atlanta to set up a law practice. Now, he comes from a long line of wealth and prominence. He is descendant of two Virginia governors, and his great-great-grandfather was Thomas Jefferson. Hollis and his wife, Caroline, first lived in Ansley Park while they had their mansion at 2494 Peachtree Road constructed. It was designed by well-known architect P. Thornton Mari, and I, there is no way I said that right, but it's M-A-R-Y-E, and uh, he was a native Virginian like Randolph. In 1904, the architect was awarded the contract to design Terminal Station, which I actually mentioned that in the Downtown Hotels Part 2 episode, so he moved to Atlanta to do the train station. And then his firm did, you know, the St. Louis Episcopal Church, other buildings downtown, and then after he designs the Randolph House, he would actually work on the Yarub Temple, which we know today as the Fox Theater. Holland's new home would be completed in 1924 and done in the Georgian style. So there was a definite connection with hiring a Virginia architect because he was familiar with the style that Randolph wanted for his own house. And the story is that this new home he built down south was very, very similar to the one he was born in. Hollins and Caroline would live in the house for 10 years before they moved to Washington, D.C. in 1934. Hollins would pass away only four years later. So for a brief time, the house was owned by someone named Julian Hirschberg, but then quickly purchased by Arthur and Margaret Lucas. Arthur owned several Atlanta theaters, and in 1934, he actually became manager of the Fox. I think it's such an interesting connection um, that the architect 
had worked on the Fox Theater and then the later owner became the manager. Margaret Lucas would go on to live in the home until she died in 1987. So after that, it's a wedding venue for a little bit, and then comes the year 2000. The developer wants to build a 10-story condo project, and the city council allows it, but with a stipulation that the house be preserved and protected. So builders move the house 40 feet to the side to accommodate the plans for this um, condo unit, and then they keep trying to find a buyer. Cue in a lot of drama that I won't get into right now, but the house was eventually slated for demolition. In November of 2013, the house was moved. Yes, moved, like taken partially apart and then carted down Petrie Street over to Ansley Park, where it got a new lease on life. So you can now see it at 78 Peachtree Circle, and it's being meticulously restored by the company that purchased it and moved it. So for the preservation community, this is like a sad consolation prize. Yes, we're all happy that it didn't end up as a pile of rubble, but it should never have gotten to that point. The second house on today's list is the Mitchell King House at the corner of Peachtree Street and 17th Street. So this is one that is not as famous as the other, and although it fronts Peachtree Street, it does have an appearance of being hidden, at least for me when there's a big tree in the front yard, it gets all its leaves, it's hard to see. Even when I was fact-checking my final list among my other fellow history nerd friends, we each had no idea what this house was called. We just kept saying like, Oh yeah, the one across from Mindspring, or the one over there on the corner. And it took me a really long time to figure out what its proper name was, and even its abbreviated history. But keep in mind, the places that no one knows about are often the easiest to demolish. And this house is a bit of an enigma, because there's such little information. I mean, it was seriously making me really mad. I had to reach out uh, to a preservation group to ask if anybody knew how to help, um, I, you know, I normally can't go to the library archives. I'm doing this on the good old World Wide Web. So my starting point um, is that it's designed and built in 1912. And the builder and architect is in some places listed as J.L. Um, Hears or Hires. But the Atlanta History Center has it listed as Edward Dowry. Often house names are hyphenated to credit several owners, but this home is different. Mitchell Campbell King was South Carolina, born and bred, but when he came to Atlanta, he married the daughter of a local prominent family. Mitchell and Ruby Jeanette Swift were married in 1910. So I'm going to venture that this house was not so much a wedding present because it was two years later, but kind of their house they built after marriage. Mitchell King made his fortunes in oil and mineral mining in Florida and Georgia, and if you're so inclined, they have a really big mausoleum at Oakland Cemetery that you can visit. Their Peachtree Street home was a blend of craftsman and Tudor revival style, and it stayed a private home until I think about 1980. So then it's been used as office space. Most recently, um, or for the longest amount of time, it has been home to the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Metro Atlanta. Third up, we have the most unique remaining mansion, affectionately known as the Castle. Ferdinand McMillan sounds like quite the character from what I can tell. He was born in Florida in 1844 and moved with his family to Atlanta in 1859. Both he and his father fought in the Civil War, and his father was actually part of the group that formally surrendered Atlanta in the last year of the war. And the story is that Ferdinand kept an anchor chained to the front porch of the castle that had been used by Union General Sherman. 
Like most, he left the area after the war, but then returned with his wife Lucy in 1883. And at this point, he's a pretty well-established businessman. In 1904, he's searching for the perfect lot to build his retirement home. And this lot was, and I'm not sure if it still is, located in the new Ansley Park. And he chooses a spot at the highest point on the highest hill he finds and begins construction in 1909. The home now is at 8715 Street, built as his retirement home, and he actually called it Fort Pierce. So it wouldn't be named the castle until later. And a fort is certainly the impression it gives. He really built the house into the hill. So there's this distinct two-story stone wall that surrounds the base, and it was designed to have you entering in through the sidewalk, which would be the first level of the house, and then kind of go from the second, third, and fourth. What I love is that he did what he wanted to do. He was his own architect, and there's a really long but really good quote that I want to share. Ferdinand says, quote, I had no architect because I knew that I would borrow ideas from him, but I wanted no one's notions but my own. I intended to build a home that suited me, not someone else. Half the world lives a lifetime without ever doing what it wants to. Men and women become so used to imitations and so afraid of ridicule that they live out their lives borrowing ideas and expressions and habits, which before had been borrowed, end quote. Drop the mic, Mr. McMillan. If that is not a life motto, I don't know what is. Ferdinand died in 1920, and after his wife's death in 1925, the home was sold. Around the late 1930s, it turns into kind of like an art center. And I've spoke about this in the High Museum episode, but the way that the High Museum started is that um, Miss Hattie High donates the family mansion to the arts. And in the following decade, her neighbors did the same thing. That gives you an idea, you know, there's three or four mansions next to the castle, and now you see the High Museum. If you've ever been to the castle in person, you know that it is literally next door to the high, and so this proximity makes it a perfect place to have arts organizations. I think in the 1940s, it was home to the Atlanta Theater Guild, uh, and then into the 50s, it kind of becomes a multi-tenant artist building. By the 1970s, the building is finally starting to become vacant and then starts to deteriorate. I'm not positive about its life in the last few decades, but I know that It was a restaurant several times, and the idea has not lasted long. But as of the last time I checked, um, this is home to a new restaurant called Rose and Rye. So this is one mansion that you can also go inside and check it out. You just have to eat dinner. Fourth up to bat is a well-known Peachtree Mansion, Rhodes Hall, which is at 1516 Peachtree Street. Amos was born in Kentucky in 1850, and by 1875 was a railroad worker in Atlanta. What he started as a small furniture business in 1879 would become A.G. Rhodes and Son with stores in 35 places across the South and the Midwest. And by 1889, he would partner with J.J. Haverty and continue in the furniture business. In 1929, the duo built the Rose Haverty Building in downtown Atlanta, which still stands today. I think it's a Marriott now. Um, now, the partnership didn't last long, but I think you can all name Haverty's Furniture Store today, so we kind of know how that side of the story went for him. The story of this house begins after Amos and his wife Amanda returned from their European vacation, and they wanted to replicate what they fell in love with, and that happened to be the German castles. 
So around 1901, uh, Mr. Rhodes starts acquiring land north of the city, and this is where they wanted to build their dream house. Hiring the young architect Willis Denny, and Denny had designed many mansions in the city, among other things. He probably needs his own episode one day because he did a lot of this work in a very short time and died at a very young age. But Rhodes Hall is really known as his masterpiece. When it was completed in 1904, it was actually named La Reve. And I don't speak French, that might be wrong, um, but it is French for the dream. The house is made with Stone Mountain granite, and it costs $50,000 to complete, which, if you do that in today's dollars, that's $1.5 million. The place wasn't just impressive from the outside, it was the top of the line in modern technology inside. It was wired for electricity, it had a security system, and almost all the rooms had call buttons. So even when Petrie Street was lined with mansions, this was still considered the most opulent of the group. Amos dies in 1928, and the children sold the estate and the land with the stipulation that it could not be torn down and it had to be used for historic purposes. In the 1930s, the house was home to the Georgia Archives, um, and then in 1983, its current owner, the Georgia Trust, moved in. And it was the Georgia Trust that fully restored the home and all of its pieces, and when I say pieces... I mean the stained glass windows. So if you have not been inside this house, I'm pretty sure that the Georgia Trust has regular tours of the home. Um, but there's a spiral staircase with stained glass windows that depict the rise and fall of the Confederacy. Don't let the subject matter turn you away. Um, the artistry in the windows is will blow you away. The fifth home I'm talking about today I've mentioned briefly in episode 11 because it was home to the Atlanta Women's Club. Standing today at 1150 Petrie Street, the Wimbish House is surrounded by office and retail. You have the whole Colony Square redevelopment happening basically across the street, and it's then sandwiched by office towers. William Wimbish was an attorney, and the story of their Petrie Street home went very much like the Rhodes family. The Wimbishes married and honeymooned in France, so when they returned home, they also wanted a mansion inspired by their travels. When I got my special tour um, of the house by the fabulous women of the Atlanta Women's Club, they explained to me that this is why the architecture is so distinct. So this French chateau-esque, they call it, it was not popular in the city at the turn of the century, but that was what they wanted because they saw it in France. So it is a special design and it's a, it's a unique house to still have. The home was designed by W.T. Downing, another big name in Atlanta architecture, um, and this is one of his famous remaining designs. So in doing this, you can kind of see the pattern of the bigger the name of the person commissioning, the bigger the name of the architect. So hiring an architect like Downing is most certainly a symbol of status. I have yet to say when it was built, and that's because I've gotten some competing dates. Some places say 1898, but most list it at 1902. It stayed as a residential home until the Wimbishes moved to Washington, D.C. in 1919, and it was sold to the Atlanta Women's Club. I'm going to stop the story there because you definitely should go and listen to that Atlanta Women's Club episode and hear all about the organization. And so we're finally here, the last house on the list. And I can't take credit for saving the best for last because this is actually the oldest house on the list and the closest to downtown. But I will say that I was a little too excited when I realized it would be the final mansion. 
And the reason I'm so excited is because this house just went on the market. The entire catalyst for this episode was actually a message um, from a history friend named Amber, and she suggested that I do an episode on Rufus Rose and his house, since it was for sale. He's a really interesting man, and there is a lot of information, but I realize I just don't think I could have spoken 20 minutes about him, um, especially when his mansion is kind of my favorite part of the story. So I realize I could explain the significance of this house being available by showcasing how very few are left and why they're important. Rufus Rose was born in Connecticut and made his way south in the 1850s. When the Civil War broke out, he joined in the Confederacy's medical division since he had actually studied medicine and then worked at a drugstore. In 1867, he makes his way to Atlanta and establishes the R.M. Rose Company. Now, if this sounds all familiar, it's because I talked about Rose and his distillery in the episode about Vinings. So I think his first distillery was on Stillhouse Road, um, but it was lost in a fire and then rebuilt um, at the intersection of 285 in Cumberland. So with the money coming from the success, he had a really popular whiskey. Um, his home was commissioned to be built on the elite Petrie Street. Rose hired architect Emile Sears. Sees? I am just not looking out with these architect names. Um, it's S-E-I-Z. And he started to design this new house. Emile began his career in Atlanta in 1897. And like the others, he has done some designs that linger in the city. But this is one of his most famous. The house was completed um, probably by 1902. And at a total cost of $9,000. Which adjusted for inflation is about $275,000. Rufus lived in the house until his death. And he actually died in the house in 1910. His widow would continue to live there until her death in 1921, and it stayed a single-family residence up through the 1940s with a brief stint as a government office and then eventually becoming a boarding house. In 1945, it was opened as an antique store and something called the Atlanta Museum, which I think is, is probably as quirky as you're imagining. This eclectic museum stayed open until 1993, and then it opened again briefly during the Olympics. From 1999 to 2001, it was actually home to the Atlanta Preservation Center, which is where I volunteer. Um, and then there's been really no life in the mansion after that, so there have been, you know, ownerships and ideas and attempts, but it's continued to sit empty and deteriorate. Uh, the reason this home is so special, though, is because it's the lone survivor among the business district that gives us a glimpse into what this street was like at the turn of the century. Just as the wealthy began to stretch their legs out onto Peachtree, and just before the automobile would really gain popularity, making places like Ansley Park and Buckhead um, you know, appear out of nowhere, this house has almost every original detail intact, and the interior photos are absolutely breathtaking. I'm going to post a link to the listing because the listing photos are great. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that you guys can check that out. The property is protected by the city. So even though we should feel assured that it won't be altered or destroyed, I don't think that any preservationist or history lover in the city ever really feels comfortable in this situation. So there you have it, the story of the last surviving mansions of Peachtree Street. I've tried really hard to find um, historical photos of each of these and put them in the show notes on the website. So you can go to archiveatlantapodcast.com and see those. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, remember to leave a rating or review. If you have any questions or want to ask me for a show topic, meeting people through this podcast has been one of the greatest joys. And I always love to hear what people have to say. So you can find my contact information in the show notes as well. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.